Praise the Lord, Bridgeway. It's so good to see you on another Sunday morning. May the Lord bless you and keep you, even as we're in the midst of this four-week series called I Hope. Today, I want to talk about the relationship between faith, hope, and love, feeling like a middle child. Next week, we're going to talk about fellowshipping together to keep hope alive. That will end our series. And then, of course, after that is Easter, April 4th this year. I hope that you will enjoy it. It will be broadcast only, but it's going to be a phenomenal production. I hope you will be with us. Just a couple opening comments before I pray and get started with today's message. I want to make sure that you know what's happening with regard to our in-person services. Here's the good news. We're going to start our first in-person service in Owens Mills, Reisterstown at our campus there, where Pastor Michener is the campus pastor. And we're going to do that on the third anniversary of OMR campus, which is Mother's Day. So May 9th, the second Sunday in May, is going to be Mother's Day, and we will open for in-person services there. With regard to our Columbia campus, we will continue to keep you posted on that as it relates to the renovations. It'll probably be sometime this summer. Now, to get more details and the protocols and all of that, remember, just go to bridgeway.cc and also sign up for the campus email. That way, you'll get an email every week on the different things that are happening in the church, including, of course, the updates on the protocols for our renovations. But let's just continue to keep uh, that, this in prayer as we want to make sure that everyone uh, is safe. Now, before I pray, I want to make sure to say a prayer specifically, not only for today's sermon, but also for our Asian American community. We want to stop Asian hate. And any group uh, that is terrorized, threatened, oppressed, whatever it may be, we stand in solidarity, even if they're not the same uh, as us. We may not, you know, they may not be black, they may not be white, they may not be Hispanic. They're Asians. And of course, there are many different uh, countries that Asian folk come from, including my wife, who comes from Korea. And even, even with her, you know, over the summer uh, of 2020, she was a little concerned about going to the grocery store or walking the dogs in a neighborhood. And just even that little bit of, of uh, concern caused me concern because I know what that feels like as an African-American male, but to see my wife feel that and to see other people who I'm in relationship with from the Asian-American community, we've got to make sure that we stop Asian hate, that we stop jokes, whether you talk about Kung flu or the China virus, stop it. Because it's not funny when it causes other people to be the targets of people's disrespect. And so I hope you hear it clearly from me, not only as your pastor, but as a gracist. If you're going to be a gracist and not a racist, you won't make those jokes. You won't laugh at other people who do, regardless of what position they are in. The reality is it's wrong and it causes great concern and fear for people in our country. Hopefully I've said enough. Now let's live it out. Can I get an amen right there in your home? Amen and amen. Come on, let's pray together. Lord, as we go into today's message, we just pray that the message goes into us. And Lord, we pray for our Asian American community as we stand in solidarity with them. As Christians, we must love and lift one another up. And we pray that even in this community now that it's been over 3,000 cases reported over the last year of hate crimes, people being spat upon and killed, up from 200 and some just a year before. 
uh, the pandemic, we do pray, God, that you would just give a sense of protection and love and that this community, regardless of what country they come from, would feel the love of true Christian uh, unity in Jesus' name. Now, we pray for this message and ask for you to use it in our lives, encourage us along the way. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen. What is your birth order? What is your birth order? Are you the oldest in the family? Are you the youngest in the family? Or maybe you're one of the kids in the middle. Maybe you're an only child. That means you get the benefits and the burdens of all three. But research tells us that the firstborn child is seemingly more responsible because more responsibility is put on the firstborn at an early age. Research also tells us that the youngest child in the family is often lauded as given more consideration, given more attention, more protected, and taken care of more. Uh, hence, they're known as the babies of the family, and some might even call them spoiled. Well, if you know anything about what it means to be catered to or have this desire to have special attention or basically uh, you're a diva, then it's possible you may be the youngest one in the family. But of course, it leaves the middle kids right in between the oldest and the youngest. They are sometimes seen as receiving less attention or fitting in or maybe even sneaking out without being noticed. Middle kids are often comparing themselves to the other kids and even competing for attention, if not downright acting out. Well, there's still a lot of psychological research to be done that's ongoing, but as you think about the three birth order categories, here's the question. Which child in the birth order would you guess I am? <laughs> well, the question in and of itself might give you a hint, because maybe I really should be asking which uh, birth order are you in, but no, it's about me. And <laughs> if you chose uh, the baby of the family, you're right. It's all about me. When Amber and I were dating and then got married, she used to say, you know, honey, it's all about you. And it made me feel so good. I just wanted to be with her all the time. And then after we were married for a while and get into conflict, she changes that. It's all about you, isn't it? It's, it's all about you. Well, the reality is the older child may be the more responsible one, like my son Isaiah would fit that category. Asia, our only daughter, would be the baby of the family. And the fact of the matter is she is quite special. But our middle child, his name is Luke, and God, I love that kid. He's full of personality, and he's vibrant, and he loves attention, you know, just like his mother. <laughs> well, admittedly like me, of course, if you know Amber in any way. But he would definitely fit the stereotype of being competitive as well. If you looked at his top five uh, Gallup strengths, competition is number one. But Luke, I, we, we remember this, because Amber and I were even uh, laughing about it uh, recently, and that is, you know, when you had Isaiah, uh, when he would get an award, let's say uh, he was the student of the month, you know, at his school, we wouldn't find it out until, if he was student of the month in September, we wouldn't find it out until October, because you open up his bag and there's some kind of certificate that was up on a school bulletin board that he brought home. Like, he would not even mention it. Well, that wasn't the case with Luke. 
Whenever Luke got an A, maybe even in elementary school or whatever, he had the personality where he would clear the refrigerator of all the magnets, of all the other awards, and he would prominently place his award right in the middle of the refrigerator. My wife was reminding me that he would even say as an elementary school kid, nobody can put anything else up for the next several days. It's just my award which is hilarious to me. Of course, then there's Asia, the baby of the family, award or no award. She's like, you know what? I already know I'm in a special category of awesomeness, so, you know, I don't even need a refrigerator. What place do you find yourself? Are you the oldest, the youngest, somewhere in the middle? How many of you are middle children? Maybe you can chat it in the box. See, I'm the oldest. I'm the youngest. I'm in the middle. Maybe even I'm an only child. But if you're in the middle... You will appreciate this message more because the middle children oftentimes could be overlooked, sometimes forgotten, a lack of attention, or they're not as appreciated and valued as some of the others. They can get lost in the sauce, if you will. Well, in today's message, I want to talk about the middle child of hope. I want to give hope some props. Today, I want you to understand that there's a great value that hope has in the family of faith, hope, and love. If you've read 1 Corinthians 13, I'm sure you have or heard it read at a wedding somewhere. You know how it says love is patient, love is kind. Uh, it's the love chapter. Do you know how it ends? In the 13th verse of the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians, it says this, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is what? You got it. Love. It's right there in the text. These three remain, Isaiah, Luke, and Asia. But the greatest of these is, well, Asia. <laughs> it's right in the word. These three remain. My brother Robert, the oldest, my sister Sandra and Brenda in the middle, and then David. The greatest of these is David. It's right in the text. No wonder I wrote my own song when I was eight years old. It's clear. It's biblical. You remember the song, don't you? I know it's been a year of COVID and you've been thinking, man, when am I going to hear that song again? Well, I wouldn't want to deprive you, so maybe we can sing it together. I'll just sing it for you. You ready? David is the best in the whole wide west on CBS in the whole U.S. Oh, yes. You like it, right? I know. You want to sing it together? That's all right. Wait till we get back in in-person services. Then we can do it in three or four part harmony. Wouldn't that be great? But by the way, I'm sure what you could always do if you want to is just rewind and you can watch it again, right? <laughs> you know I will. Here's the bottom line. That middle child is the one that may not be writing his or her own song when they're growing up. But the text tells us that there is within faith and hope, some, within faith and love, something in the middle that is just as valuable. And I want to give hope a voice today. I want you to see the significant value of hope. It may not sing as loud as faith. It may not sing as loud as love, but it has its own song. It has its own value. It has its own power. And today we're clearing the refrigerator and we're putting hope right in the middle. And by the way, how do you think faith and hope feel about this whole idea of love being the greatest out of these three? Faith, hope, and love. Love is the greatest of all of these. Well, how do you think hope feels about that? How do you think faith feels about that? Well, here's the thing. Faith in the scriptures gets its own props too. Remember what it said in 
In Hebrews 11, 6, it says, without what? Faith, it's impossible to please God. Wow. Father God is actually pleased by faith. So hold on. You mean to tell me that faith pleases God and love is the greatest? What's up with the middle child hope? All right? Refrigerator clear. And now let's ask ourselves the question, why is hope so significant? Because without hope, without hope, there would be no power to our faith, no passion to our love. Without hope, our faith would have no substance, our love would have no passion. In that same chapter of Hebrews, in verse 1, the whole chapter opens up with the definition of faith. Listen to what it says. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. That's the King James Version. Hope gives faith its power, its substance, its surety. Faith has to have something to hope for, someone to hope in. If hope means holy optimism based on positive expectations, then we have to have something to hope for and someone to hope in, and that's Jesus. That same verse in the New International Version, 1984, says this, faith is being sure of what is hoped for and certain of what we do not see. You know, the Michners, Pastor Michner and his family over there in uh, the Owens Mills area, they got a new property many years ago, their farm home with many acres, and they actually call it a long hoped for acres because it was a property that they had hoped for in their hearts. They'd just never seen it until, well, they saw it. And now they live there, what they've been hoping for, to have some space and to have the kind of a country home that they, they've envisioned as they finally were able to, to get it. And, and, and I think that that long hope for name works well because it's something that they had said, Lord, I know it's going to be there. Maybe one day you'll actually provide it. And, you know, as believers, we hope for a Christ that we've actually never seen yet. I mean, in our hearts and in the lives of other people, but, but Jesus Christ is, the, is in us, and he's the hope of glory, but we've yet to see him. But John tells us in 1 John that one day we shall see him as he is. We believe that this Christ who we hope for will come back one day and take us home. We are told that this world is not our home, that we're citizens of another kingdom, that we are pilgrims passing through, that we have our own longed hope for acres awaiting us called heaven. They tell me that in that place, the streets are paved with gold, that there's a crystal sea, that there will be no more death or sorrow there. They tell me in the scriptures that in that new place, the long hope for acres called heaven, there will be no more sickness, no more cancer, no more COVID, no more diabetes, and only one underlying condition, and that's grace. Hmm, come on, somebody. There will be a place where there's no more darkness because the very presence of God shines throughout the heavens. And so what I want to do for the rest of the message is take you to the books of First and Second Thessalonians, 
So you can begin to see how the longed hoped for acres in heaven are, are there for us. And so if you get your Bibles, we're going to be toggling back and forth between First and Second Thessalonians. But we know that while there's a relationship between faith, hope, and love, and they work together, God wants us to hold on to the hope that we have in him. And if you don't keep your eye on heaven, you can get stuck in thinking that this world is all there is. Yes, we have to be heavenly minded, but we don't want to be so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. But we don't want to be so earthly minded that we forget that it's all about the forever and always, not only in this life, but there is a life to come that makes our hope passionate and powerful because we know that this is not all there is. So while we saw in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, the trilogy of faith, hope, and love, I want to now take you to 1 Thessalonians where you see this same trilogy. And what I want to know is if you can, if you can identify it when I read it. So I'm going to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And we'll look at the opening. Paul is the same writer of Corinthians. He's now writing to the church in Thessalonica. And as he opens this letter that he sends to them, check out verses 2 and 3. And let's see if you can observe or notice the trilogy when it's read of faith, hope, and love. Here, here he goes. We, also, we always thank God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. Verse 3. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Did you see it? Faith, love, hope. We thank God, and as we pray for you, we, we are remembering your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope. You see, hope gives endurance, but they were beginning to lose their hope, as we'll discover when we continue to read in this book. In fact, by the time you get to the second letter of Thessalonians, you'll see that the Christians in Thessalonica were losing their hope to the degree that we don't even see it in the opening of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. So while we saw 1 Thessalonians 1.3, I want you now to turn over to 2 Thessalonians 1.3 and listen to his opening when he writes them in 2 Thessalonians and see if you can see what's missing. Here it is, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers, sisters are included, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more. And the love every one of you has for each other is increasing. Did you notice what was missing from the trilogy? What happened between letter one and letter two? The Thessalonians were struggling with the end times. They had thought that they missed the rapture and that they might be in the midst of the tribulation or the judgment day. They had wondered if they we're going to endure the tribulation period, and if God was going to have them go through what the prophecies had been talking about from the Old Testament, that there would be a day of Jacob's trouble, that there would be a day of a great tribulation that would come upon the earth for seven years. And according to Old Testament prophets, that the tribulation would last for, for seven years, where God would allow his wrath to come upon the earth, 
and the judgment of God would be on the earth before the believers would be finally taken away to this new heaven and this new earth. And so now they're believing that they missed the rapture, that they're living in the tribulation, and that somehow they're going to have to endure God's wrath. So their minds were a bit confused, their hearts were a bit shaken, and the Apostle Paul needed to write them to set them straight, to let them know, no, 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 not only did you not miss the rapture, but God is saving you from the judgment day, but a judgment day for sure is coming. And this is why Paul would spend so much time in both books talking about the end times. And so in the Thessalonian book, one and two, we are exalted to trust three truths that we can hold on to. He wanted the Thessalonian Christians to trust three truths that they could hold on to. And I want to tell you, we can hold on to them as well. Now, you'll have to read uh, 2 Thessalonians, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. There are five chapters in 1 Thessalonians, three chapters in 2 Thessalonians. And you can read verses 1 through 11 on your own. But let me just highlight in verse 4, 1 Thessalonians 5, 4, it says that when the Lord comes back, he's going to come back like a thief in the night. But that should not take us uh, by concern. It shouldn't terrorize us because we know that we are not going to be judged. And the whole point he's making is that, yes, uh, like a thief in the night, the Lord's going to come back and people are going to be amazingly surprised. In verse 8, he says, but, but you're going to have on that hope as a helmet. Remember we talked about that? Uh, put on hope as a helmet of salvation. You have on the helmet of salvation, so you're not going to get hit with the judgment. You've been saved. And so what the apostle wants us to do as we read 1 uh, uh, Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians is to realize that we can trust these three truths. Truth number one, trust that God will return. Trust that God will return. Now, I know you're in your Bibles, and so go to 2 Thessalonians and just listen to what he says in verses 1 through 5, 2 Thessalonians 1 through 5, and listen to what it says. Concerning the coming of the Lord, Jesus Christ, and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed, by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us, saying that, listen, the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day, the day of judgment, will not come until the rebellion occurs, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worship, so that he sets himself in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. So there's a day that's going to come when the man of lawlessness, this is the Antichrist, uh, this is someone that's going to come and people are going to idolize him to such a degree that he can almost sit in the middle of the church and be worshipped by Christians. And that the Thessalonians don't have to worry about being stuck on that day of judgment because the day of judgment is not going to happen until the man of lawlessness or the Antichrist is revealed. And it goes on to say in verse 5, don't you remember when, when I was with you? I used to tell you 
all of these things? Well, what is he talking about? Don't you remember? Well, don't you remember what I said in, in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, for instance? Remember what he said in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13. He says this, brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who have fallen asleep or, or grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left to the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Did you see what happened there? What Paul was saying in 2 Thessalonians, don't you remember what I was saying to you? I'm trying to tell you that you can trust that God will return. And the Thessalonians had, had not been left behind, but because of false teachers, they thought, wow, we've been left behind. And they were fearing that. And Paul was saying, no, no, no. I want you to know that he's coming back for you. And I want you to remember that he will return for you. That's the first truth. And let me just pause there to say to every believer right now, if you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you can be assured that Jesus Christ will return for you. But here's the second truth that you can trust, and that is this. Trust that God will repay. Trust that God will repay. Not only will he return, but he will repay. Check out. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, because God is going to repay those who have harmed the Thessalonians, and he will handle their enemies. God will make all things right on judgment day. You can trust that God is just. Listen to what it says. We're back and forth between 1 and 2 Thessalonians. We're now in 2 Thessalonians, and check out verse 13. I want you to, I want you to see it for yourself, because this is amazing. Actually, verse 3. This is what it says. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers, and rightly so, because of your faith, it's growing more and more, and your love, uh, uh, every one of you has for each other is increasing. But now, check out what it says as we move down to verse 5. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering Key verse, verse 6, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whew. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on the 
day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed in our testimony. You believed our testimony to you. This includes you. Meaning, listen, if you've trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you can trust not only that Christ will return, but you can trust that Christ will repay. Trust that God will repay those who deserve it. I mean, the reality is we all deserve hell. We all deserve to be removed from his presence. But what happens is God says, don't take vengeance on yourself. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. You are going to be terrorized at times. You are going to be uh, persecuted, maybe even prosecuted for your faith. But hold on, because not only will God return, God will repay. And I love that verse in verse 6, that he will trouble those who trouble you. I don't know what trouble you're going through, and I don't know if there's anybody who is just kind of continually coming against you. But this is a word for someone, that when people trouble the people of God, they will be troubled themselves. And the enemy who's continually troubling you, he will be troubled. That's why I pray sometimes, if something evil's coming against me, Lord, please trouble those that are troubling me. I don't have time to deal with people that are troubling me. Lord, this is your battle. And so I'm not going to give energy to that. I'm going to allow you to take this word and make it active in my life. Repay those, Lord, who are troubling me. And you know God will do it. I'll never forget a time when there's a guy that came into the church, and he said he wanted to sue the church and wanted to put a lien on our building because he was a part of the building program for this beautiful facility that we're in, and he hadn't received $10,000 from someone who was supposed to pay him. And the receptionist came to me and said, there's a man in the lobby, and he's saying he's going to sue the church, and he wants to see you. So I went out to the lobby, and I said, come on in my office. It was two of them. And as they sat in front of my desk, I said, what's going on? The man said, I'm just going to sue you. I'm going to put a lien on your building because we haven't received $10,000. I said, listen. First of all, that's not our $10,000 to pay. You need to get paid by somebody else. But we could easily write a check for you for $10,000. That's not the issue. The issue is this. Are you really coming into God's church and you really want to sue God's church? And if you're going to sue, you better sue for a whole lot more than that because $10,000 is not worth it. You really sue the man of God? The church of Jesus Christ? You might want to think about that again. And his head just went like this. He dropped his head because he realized, what is wrong with me? Over $10,000, I'm going to come against God's church? That's probably not wise. And in that moment, he repented. He said, Dr. Anderson, I just want to get paid. And I said, well, I can make a phone call to the person that's supposed to pay you, but don't come in here talking about suing God's church. That's just not a good look. You touch God's anointed ministry? 
And not because we're all that. It's just because these are God's kids. You, you, anybody mess with your kids, they messing with you. You mess with God's kids. You mess with God's man, God's woman, God's ministry. Over $10,000. That may seem like a lot to some people, a little to others, but it is not worth your soul. And it's not worth God repaying you for the trouble you put his people through. Don't do it. And he recanted. He said, I'm sorry. Just want to get paid and things are really, really tight. I said, well, let's pray on that. Let me make a phone call. And sure enough, that, that's all that happened. He made a phone call. He ended up getting paid. But you talk to that man today, and I won't name him, but you talk to that man today, he will say to you what he said to me. He says, after I dropped that, the next year I began to, to, to tithe. And he says, that was the most financially lucrative year for my business ever, ever. Because listen, he made a decision. Am I going to continue to trouble the, the man of God, the, the people of God because of my $10,000 or am I going to actually come in line with God and even begin to tithe and look what God did. He made more money that year than he had ever made up until that point. What am I saying? God is saying you can trust these three truths, that he will return, but also he will repay. And he'll definitely repay those that are troubling you. Just keep walking with him. Here's the third and final truth, and that is this. Trust that God will remove me. Trust that God will remove me. Now back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and, and check out verses 6 through 12. Now we're in chapter 2. And check out verses 6 through 12. And now you know what is holding him back. Follow me here. So that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. But the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. Let me, let me just explain this and read it a little bit more slowly because I want you to get this. He says, now you know what is holding him back. Who's the him? The lawless one, the antichrist, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. Verse 7, for the secret power of the lawless is already at work, so it's happening, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so until he's taken out of the way. Who's, who's the one holding back the evil? The one is the church, some theologians say. The Holy Spirit, some theologians say. I say both. Because the Holy Spirit lives in the church, the, the people of God. And when he comes back and he takes them out, he raptures them. That's when the seven-year tribulation period begins where the wrath of God begins to hit the earth. And there is a process that God is doing in that seven-year period where he's restoring Israel both spiritually and physically. Now, I'm not going to get into all of the details of, of these end times, but understand that that rapture then kicks off the seven-year period. And what it's saying is that the one who now holds it back, we the church, with the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, are holding back evil. 
You say, but there's so much evil around. Let me tell you something. It's not going to be anything like the evil that will happen on the day of the Lord when the church is taken away. Can you imagine when the church of Jesus Christ over all of the globe are taken off of the earth and the presence of the Holy Spirit and the presence of Christian people are no longer on the planet? What do you think the world's going to be like then? And right now, that's who the restrainer is. The restrainer of evil is the church. The restrainer of evil is the Holy Spirit. And when the Lord takes the church and the Holy Spirit away from the earth, that's when the judgment will come and the lawless one will rise up. Now, we already have the lawlessness happening, but it's all just setting up for that day when God says, okay, now it's time. And so as you continue to read verse 8, and then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. It's when he now comes back after, after that period of time that he's gone with the believers in the Holy Spirit. Verse 9, the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work, will be in accordance with the work of Satan displayed in all kinds, listen, of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders, verse 10, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They're deceived. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Verse 11, for this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. So you can imagine why the Thessalonians were so nervous. Because God, if you already took the church out, if you already took the restrainer of evil off of the earth and we're still here, that means that the coming day of wrath that means that the day of the Lord is here. That means that we're going to have to now suffer the, the evil of, of all that's going to take place on the earth without the power of the Spirit. God, I can't believe that's happening. And that's why Paul was writing, no, 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 you don't understand. You don't understand. God is going to save you from all of that. And so Paul's prayer in light of this for the Thessalonians comes in verse 16. He says, May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, not negative fear, good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and work. Don't worry about it. God's got you. And he's given you eternal encouragement, good hope. He's strengthening you. That's why in 2 Thessalonians 3, 3, it says this, but the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. In other words, be assured that you will be removed and protected from evil. Well, hope may be in the middle. Hope may be a middle child, but sometimes it's in the middle where the most work happens. <laughs> you know, Jesus died in the middle between two thieves. Jesus died in the middle of two messes. God majors in messes. 
And right when he was there at the crucifixion, he had a mess to the right and a, a mess to the left. And, and he comes right in the middle of our messes, but he always brings a message. And the message that he brought on that day was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he looked to the one thief that was repentant right before him, and he said, today you will be with me in paradise. He gave the thief to his right hope. You see, Jesus gives hope. Even when you look at not only the trilogy of faith, hope, and love, but look at the triunity of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, which one's in the middle? The one who steps in the middle of our mess and he brings a message that you can be forgiven, that you do not have to live through the judgment day of Christ, that you don't have to be separated from God, but you must simply repent of your wickedness and say, God, come into my life, save my soul. He died on the cross and rose again from the dead to give us that Easter message that if I rose again from the dead, you can rise too. He was the, the only one that was able to walk on water. He was right in the middle of it all. He was the only one that stood. The suffering of humanity while hanging on a cross. So what's the practical application? It makes it very simple. According to 1 Peter 3, 15, it says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason, to give the reason for the hope, not the faith, not the love, but give the reason for the hope that you have. You see, you can count on the fact that there's an everlasting hope that Christ will return that Christ will repay, that Christ will remove us from the day of judgment. And if you live a life of faith and love, then people will ask you about the hope that you have within you. And so the practical application is that we prepare to share our hope. Prepare and share the hope that you have. In other words, tell somebody about that hope when they ask. If you live a life of faith, if you live a life of love, they're going to ask you, what's that about? And that's when you share with them the hope of heaven, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And you can say that hymn and sing that hymn like you've heard it said for the last two weeks and sung a bit today this morning. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand.